Welcome to PwC IFRS Talks, your source for all things IFRS. I'm your host, Rahaza Sheikh. In today's podcast, my returned guest is Kastin Ghansawri, who's going to tell us about the development at the September IFRS Interpretations Committee meeting. Welcome back, Kastin. Glad to be back, Rahaza. So this month was a shorter agenda with a number of issues having been discussed at the IFRIC meetings previously. So what we'll do is we'll run through each one in turn to perform a very quick recap of the issue and summarize where the committee landed on each of them. For reference, I will also include a link to the previous podcast in the talking points that will accompany this podcast. If we go in order of the agenda, the first item was on multi-currency groups of insurance contracts, which was first discussed in June 2022, and that was in episode 132. Carsten, can you briefly summarize the issue that was being addressed? Sure. So, so as we as we covered this issue already in the recent podcast, I'm not planning to go into much detail here. For, for listeners that are interested in more background, I recommend you listen into the summary of the issue that I provided in the June podcast. So, so let me just remind people on a high level what this submission was about. So essentially, is it is about the accounting for insurance contracts where cash flows and multiple currencies are involved. So, for example, that might be the case when an entity issues insurance contracts in multiple currencies or where costs in relation to an insurance contract are incurred in a currency that is different from the currency in which the contract is issued. The issue essentially arises because IFRS 17 requires entities to consider a group of insurance contracts as a single unit of account. And so if there are multiple currencies in that single unit of account, the question arises on how to account for those foreign currency cash flows. So in relation to insurance contracts that involve more than one currency, the committee essentially discussed two questions. So the first question was around whether an entity considers currency risk when identifying portfolios of insurance contracts. And the second question was, was around how exactly the foreign currency translation works where groups of insurance contracts contain cash flows in multiple currencies. So, Carsten, can you explain what the committee decided on this issue and whether there were any substantial changes to the tentative agenda decision that we'd seen previously? Yes. Uh, so, on the first question, that is whether an entity considers currency risk when identifying portfolios of insurance contracts, the short answer to this is yes. The committee essentially confirmed at its September meeting that entities cannot ignore currency risk when identifying portfolios of insurance contracts with, you know, with no changes to the tentative agenda decision. However, I think it's important to keep in mind that similar risks does not mean identical risks. And so even though currency risk cannot be ignored, it's certainly possible that a portfolio of contracts may contain multiple currencies. So what an entity considers to be similar risks will depend on the nature and extent of the risk in its insurance contracts. So with, with this in mind, I think it can be expected that in most cases, an analysis based on all risks would reside you know, in the same or a similar outcome as an analysis that is based on the risk transfer to the policyholder. On, on the second question, that is how exactly the foreign currency translation works where groups of contracts contain cash flows in multiple currencies, the committee also essentially confirmed its previous tentative analysis 
that there are no, you know, no detailed requirements on this matter in either the insurance standard IFRS 17 or the foreign currency translation standard IS 21, and that there's therefore, you know, more than one possible approach. So, so entities would need to develop an accounting policy in that regard. However, there was one important change to the tentative agenda de decision, which I think is worth mentioning. It isn't really a substantive change, but I think uh, very helpful clarification. So I, I, th I think the staff paper for the September meeting was really quite helpful in explaining which parts of the accounting is, is covered by IFRS 17 and which bits are covered by IS 21. So this is quite a complex area. So I think the analysis in the staff paper was really helpful in that regard. So the staff proposed and the committee agreed that some wording should be added to the to the agenda decision that clarifies that the accounting policy applied by an entity would determine which effects of changes in exchange rates are, are exchange differences accounting for applying IS-21 and which effects are changes in financial risks accounted for applying IFRS-17. So, so that will be clarified in the agenda decision and the ISB staff paper for the meeting also provided some quite helpful and more detailed analysis and views on the consequences of this conclusion, including the interaction with the OCI option in IFRS 17. Perfect, thanks Karsten. And so that tentative agenda decision was finalised by the IFRIC committee and will be subject to non-objection by the board. So moving on to the second agenda item, this was on the accounting for warrants acquisition in the context of special purpose acquisition companies, also referred to as SPACs. Now, Carson and I have shared a SPAC special IFRS Talks podcast, which was in episode 128, and that provides more detailed background on the initial submission. But maybe for benefit of our listeners, Carson, can you remind them what a SPAC is and what the related accounting questions that were submitted were? Sure. So, so a SPAC is essentially an entity that is created with capital from its initial investors, which then undergoes an IPO to raise additional capital with the intention of acquiring you know, one or more unspecified operating companies. Now, this agenda decision essentially addresses the accounting when a target, target company has been identified and the transaction is executed in a particular type of fact pattern. There are a number of complex accounting questions involved, including, you know, for example, whether the warrants that were initially issued by the SPAC are assumed or not assumed as part of the transaction, and to what extent new warrants that are issued by the acquirer are in the scope of IFRS 2 or IS 32. So Carson, can you explain what the committee decided on this issue and whether there are any substantial changes to the tentative agenda decision that we saw previously? Yeah, so I'm, I'm not planning to go into the details of the fact pattern or the complexities involved in the accounting analysis, as, as we already covered that in quite a bit of detail in that previous podcast special that you mentioned, where we, where we were focusing only on specs. So if you're interested in more details, I recommend you listen into that podcast special. So, so at the September meeting, the committee considered the feedback received from comment letters and essentially confirmed its previous analysis around the accounting for a particular type of spec transaction, you know, that I described in more detail in that previous podcast. So, so there was another lively discussion on this matter and the committee voted to finalize the agenda decision with a few amendments to the tentative agenda decision. I, I think the, the most significant changes were probably two things. First, 
the staff proposed and the committee agreed to make more clear in the agenda decision which considerations of the analysis are relevant are relevant more generally and which apply only in particular situations depending on whether the spec warrants are assumed by the acquirer this this maybe isn't a substantial change in terms of the content but my sense is that those changes were really helpful in making the agenda decision easier to understand and second there was one change to the agenda decision which some might view as a clarification but but at least in my mind it was rather substantial so that change relates to the scenario where it's considered that the entity has assumed the spec warrants and then replaces those warrants with new warrants in that scenario because the entity negotiated the replacements of the warrants together with the spec acquisition the entity would need to consider to what extent it would account for the replacement transaction as part of the acquisition or separately from it. Now, the TED said that since there are no requirements in IFRS that, that specifically apply, entities applying the IS-8 hierarchy in developing an accounting policy would refer to the requirements in paragraph B50 of IFRS 3. Now, that paragraph is trying to work out whether in a business combination, the transaction is for the benefit of the acquirer or for the benefit of the, of the acquirer. However, this guidance was written in the specific context of a business combination and a number of committee members, including myself, were, were not comfortable with that reference as it seemed not really clear how to apply that guidance to the spec issue in the submission. For that reason, the committee decided to delete that reference. Personally, I thought that was that change was clearly an improvement to the agenda decision as requiring entities to apply that paragraph you know, would seem to go beyond the requirements and IFRS standards and might, might create practical application issues. So because of that, the removal of that reference clearly made sense to me. I think there were one or two other changes that were more editorial, but in, in my mind, the ones I just mentioned really were the key changes that the committee decided to make on this issue. Perfect. Thanks, Carsten. And I find those, you know, the, the scoping questions, especially when you're considering between two standards, they're, they're really interesting indeed. And sim it's a similar sort of theme on the next agenda item, which is on the accounting of a lessor's forgiveness of lease payments. This issue was first discussed in March 2022, and that was in episode 127. Carsten, can you remind our listeners of what the accounting question was in this, in this submission? Sure. So, so this was a request about the accounting by a lessor where a particular rent concession is agreed between a lessor and a lessee. So the lessor had classified the lease as an operating lease and has recognized an operating lease receivable for amounts contractually due but not yet paid. Now, the lessor then legally releases the lessee from its obligation to make specifically identified lease payments some of which relate to those amounts that the lesser had recognized as an operating lease receivable, and some of which relate to amounts that are not, not yet contractually due, so future rent payments. Um, I think it's important to highlight that in the submitted fact pattern, no other changes were made to the lease contract and no other negotiations were going on between the lesser and the lessee. So the request asked how the lesser applies the expected credit loss or ECL model in IFRS 9 to the operating lease receivable when it expects to forgive payments due from the lessee under the lease contract before the rent concession is actually granted. And second, 
whether the lessor applies the derecognition requirements in IFRS 9 or the lease modification requirements in IFRS 16 in accounting for the rent concession. And can you explain what the committee decided on this issue? You know, again, were there any substantial changes to the tentative agenda decision that we'd seen earlier this year? Yes, sure. So let me try to give a high-level reminder of, you know, some selected key points. Uh, first, the agenda decision would highlight that the def definition of credit losses in IFRS 9 refers to all cash shortfalls. So that definition does not limit cash shortfalls only to those that are credit related. Therefore, in the period before the rent concession is granted, the lessor considers its expectations of forgiving lease payments when it measures expected credit losses on the operating lease receivable. And second, in relation to the question, you know, whether the lessor applies the IFRS 90 recognition requirements or the IFRS 16 modification requirements, the committee essentially concluded that the lesser would apply both of them. So I mentioned that in the submission, some of the forgiven cash flows relate to amounts that the lesser had recognized um, as, an, as a lease receivable, and some relate to future rent payments. So the lesser would apply IFRS 90 recognition requirements to the amounts recognized as a receivable and apply the IFRS 16 modification requirements to the amounts that relate to future rent payments. Finally, let me highlight a couple of personal observations from various discussions that go beyond what was specifically addressed by the agenda decision itself. First, I think it's interesting to note that the staff paper makes a clear distinction between lease receivables and accrued lease payments. Now, given those terms are not actually defined in IFRS 16, there was quite a bit of debate around when you would have a lease receivable and when you would have an accrued lease payment. This seems quite important as operating these receivables are subject to the IFRS 9D recognition and impairment requirements, but there's no corresponding scope in for accrued lease payments. Second, I'd like to highlight that the analysis relates to a very specific fact pattern where there's only a forgiveness of lease payments with no other changes to the lease contract. So I'd like to highlight that the analysis and conclusions might be quite different when there are other changes to the lease contracts or other negotiations going on between the lessor and the lessee. Um, finally, as you mentioned, we covered the committee's analysis in a previous podcast. So if you're interested in more details, I recommend to also listen into our, I think it was in March, the March IFRS Talks podcast. Thanks, Carson. I mean, I find your personal reflections really helpful, particularly, you know, summarizing what sometimes lengthy debates in a couple of high-level bullet points. So thank you, Carsten. So if we now move on to the final agenda item, this was on a discussion on, you know, possible way forward when determining the spot exchange rate when exchangeability is lacking. So in April 2021, the ISB published the exposure draft, Lack of Exchangeability, which proposed amendments to IS21. And this originated from an IFRIC submission. And there have been a number of discussions since then in various forums. So to begin, can you explain what the issue is that needs to be addressed, Karsten? Yes, so for, for background, IS21 generally requires the use of a spot exchange rate, with, you know, which is the rate for immediate delivery. Now, IS21 specifies the exchange rate to use in reporting foreign currency transactions when exchangeability between two currencies is temporarily lacking. 
However, the standard does not specify what an entity is required to do when a lack of exchangeability is not temporary. So, so as you mentioned, the project originated from a committee discussion around how an entity determines the exchange rate to use when a foreign operations functional currency is not exchangeable into the presentation currency. So based on that discussion, the, the committee identified a need to add requirements to IS21 on how an entity determines whether a currency is exchangeable into another currency and the accounting requirements to apply when it's not exchangeable. So earlier this year, the ISB discussed the summary of the feedback on the exposure draft and provided some initial thoughts for the staff to consider. Uh, also members of the emerging economies group were asked to provide their, their views on the staff's preliminary suggestions. So at the September meeting, IFRIC members were asked for their views on the staff's current thinking. And can you perhaps expand on, you know, one of the possible ways uh, that were proposed to take this forward and the next steps that were discussed? Sure. So, so I wasn't, again, I wasn't planning to go into all the details, but on a high level, the staff proposed a number of changes to the ED. So, for example, the exposure draft proposed that entities would need to assess a number of conditions when exchangeability is lacking and estimate the spot exchange rate in such a way that those conditions would be met. However, as we are talking about a situation where exchangeability is lacking, that might be quite difficult to apply in practice. And many felt that the requirements in the ED might require entities to factor in conditions that, that do not necessarily exist in particular markets. So for these reasons, based on the feedback received, the staff is proposing to change the proposed language and not to refer to those con to those criteria as conditions that have to be met, but instead amend that paragraph to state that an entity's objective in estimating the spot exchange rate is to reflect at the measurement date the rate at which an orderly transaction um, would take place between market participants under prevailing economic conditions. So the purpose of those proposed amendments is to the exposure draft is mainly to ease application and make the proposals more operational for entities. Now, a number of comments were made by committee members, but I think overall it's fair to say that the committee was broadly supportive of the staff proposals and the direction proposed by the staff. So in terms of next steps, the staff intends to bring a paper to a future ISB meeting, which will provide recommendations on the project direction, considering the feedback received. Thanks, Carsten. And we look forward to see how these issues will develop as they go forward to the board discussion. So to summarize, I think um, it, it's worth highlighting that the, the first three agenda, agenda items that we discussed um, have all now been finalized um, and will be subject to non-objection from the board. So again, we'll look forward to seeing, seeing them finalized in the upcoming months. So thanks again, Carsten, for joining us to provide an overview of the meeting. I think it is super helpful to, you know, summarize within 20 minutes or so um, a, a day's worth of discussion. And that brings us to the end of the September IFRIC update. Thank you to all our listeners. I hope you found it useful. And until next time, happy accounting. The preceding programme was brought to you by PricewaterhouseCoopers LLP. 
This content is for general information purposes and is not a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.